Good morning, church. Where have you been for the last two weeks? I'm happy to be back with you. Uh, two weeks ago, I was in South Carolina, but I live-streamed Nate's message, which was so good. Go and grow. Now, we have a deep bench here at Vera Christian Church, and appreciate Nate, Scott, and now Kent. And uh, also, this past Sunday, Tony Wolf preached a very heart-tugging message, and that was great as well. But I'm back now, and what I want to do, what we want to do for the remaining Sundays in December, we're going to take a little break from our Obey Everything series. I mean, we still have a handful of commands to look at. We'll get back to that in January, the commands of Jesus. But it's Christmas time. Everybody's thinking about Christmas, and so we're going to, we're going to reflect a little bit on Christmas truths. Now, there are a number of Christmas traditions that we might not be doing as much of this particular year. Typically, there's a lot of travel at Christmas. A lot of people are not traveling near as much. Families tend to gather together in big gatherings at Christmas, may not be doing that as much, maybe not the big Christmas meals. I know folks, I know families who did not get together at Thanksgiving, and they're not getting together at Christmas. But one Christmas tradition, we may be even accelerating a little bit this year, is the tradition of watching Christmas movies. Maybe not in the theater so much, maybe at home, but most folks have a, a Christmas movie that they, they really like to like uh, watch, rather, and maybe more than one. And so what we're going to do is each Sunday, we're calling this Christmas at the Movies, we're going to springboard off of a traditional movie into the topic of that Sunday. And as you've already figured out, uh, the one for today is The Grinch. The Grinch is a big, giant, green who-hating creature, doesn't have a friend in the world except maybe his dog, Max, and he wanted to stop Christmas from coming. That, that was originally a book, How the Grinch Stole Christmas, written by Dr. Who, Dr. Seuss, back in 1957. That's how old that book is, 1957. 1957, Steve Barlow and I still have full heads of hair. And then 10 years later, it was made into a movie, and we just saw a clip for that movie. So, I must stop Christmas from coming. Is there a real-life Grinch? In reality, is there a person who hates family and singing and joy and fellowship and, and hates Christmas? Yes, there is. Somebody in the earlier service said Gavin Newsom, but I'm not talking about Gavin Newsom. I'm talking about Satan. It is Satan. In Revelation chapter 12, verse 4, we read, the dragon stood in front of the woman who was about to give birth so that he might devour her child the moment it was born. All right, so this is imagery, symbolism, but the dragon is Satan. He's standing in front of the woman who was married, is about to give birth to Jesus, the child. Satan wanted to stop Christmas from coming, happening. When I'm using Christmas in this message, I'm talking about the birth of Jesus. That's what I'm referring to. So yeah, it's Satan. Now, what I want to do this morning is reflect on why. Why did Satan want to stop Christmas from coming? We're going to look at that. And I'm sure there's more than one reason. Of course, we're going to look at three. And we're also going to flip each one of these reasons because these are the reasons Satan wanted to stop Christmas from coming. Conversely, there are also the reasons that we as Christians embrace Christmas. There's two sides to each one of these. So let's get started. Reason number one why Satan wanted to stop Christmas from coming was because of the curse, because of God's curse. 
Genesis chapter 3, verse 14. So the Lord said to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. The genesis of Christmas, so to speak, was in the Garden of Eden. And of course, you had Adam and Eve, God had created Adam and Eve, given them the one prohibitive command. You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And the day that you do, you will die. So later on, Satan in the form of the serpent comes along. He's interacting with Eve. He challenges that. Did God really say that? Did God really say you would die? Yes. Oh, you will not die. You will not surely die. So that was a lie. But subsequently, Eve ate of the fruit. Adam ate of the fruit. And then God pronounced a curse. Now, a part of that curse was right here on the serpent, on Satan himself. And God says, this woman is going to have a descendant, and that descendant is going to crush your head. It's going to deal you a death blow. So Satan, knowing that, if you were Satan and you heard that, what would you do? You would try to stop that from happening. So because of the curse, Satan is trying to stop the Son of God, the Messiah, from ever being born in the first place. And you know the Christmas story, and we know that account. When Jesus was born in Bethlehem and Herod found out from the wise men when that was happening, where it was happening, and then he gave the order that all the little baby boys two years old and under would be put to death. You know, that's, those are living actions that are being inspired by Satan, trying to stop that from happening. Now, conversely, we flip that around, and we who are Christians, we embrace Christmas because of the curse, because of the curse. So, as you know, it wasn't just Satan, the serpent, that was cursed. Adam and Eve and all of humanity were cursed as well. The death principle did enter into creation at that time. All, the entire cosmos came under a curse. For instance, now, everything in our world tends toward disorder and death. That's one, that's one way to state the second law of thermodynamics, that everything tends toward disorder and death. And we experience all kinds of suffering, pain, remorse, loneliness, grief, sickness, all of that can be traced back to Satan and sin. That's what brought the curse in. It's good for us, I think, to reflect on that, especially in, in this kind of an environment, kind of a dispassionate environment, that this pain that we experience and the suffering that we experience, it's not God's fault. A lot of times, when this is happening to us, we're angry, and understandably so. We, we sense it. We feel it. This is not the way it's supposed to be. We're not supposed to be experiencing these terrible things. And sometimes, as a result, we get angry at God. Why, God, why are you doing this to me? Or why is God allowing this to happen to me? Legitimate questions. But here we can reflect upon where this curse came from, where these things came from. They originated not with God, but with Satan and sin. So if I'm standing at the bedside of someone who's just lost a loved one or they're suffering from some kind of pain, I'm not going to necessarily say, and they're raging at God, I'm not necessarily going to say, don't blame God, it's not his fault. I'm going to put my arm around them and, and pray with them, try to help shoulder that pain. But here, in this environment, 
we can think this through and kind of equip ourselves for the future to remember it's not God's fault. God is the one who is doing something about it. Somebody asked me just the other day, do you think this coronavirus is from God? I said, no, I think it's from China, number one. And I think ultimately it's from sin, Satan and sin. That's where all viruses ultimately come from. So when Jesus was born, born to die and resurrect, it was two things. It was the fulfillment of the curse on Satan. And it was the lifting of the curse from us. Galatians chapter 3, verse 13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. As it is written, cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. So it's a good news, bad news thing. You know, it's bad news for Satan. It's bad news for those who would try to resist the will of God. But it's good news for us, for we who are Christians. All right. Time Magazine Man of the Year for 2014. Uh, it's been a, a number of years ago, and maybe we don't pay that much attention. But anybody know who this is by any chance? Yes. I know some people do, may not want to say. And his name's up there if you can read it. But it's Dr. Kent Brantley. Dr. Kent Brantley is doctor, missionary, contracted, first American to contract Ebola virus and to recover. And so subsequently, he had the antibodies in his blood, and his blood was used as life-giving transfusions to at least three Americans. He said, anybody needs my blood, you can have it. Life-giving transfusions for three Americans through his blood. Time Magazine, Man of the Year, 2014, Person of the Year. However, as laudable as that is, Dr. Brantley did not purposefully, intentionally contract Ebola virus so that he could recover and then save other people's lives through his blood. Who would do that? Well, our Savior Jesus would do that. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 9. By God's grace, Jesus tasted death for everyone. Intentionally, on purpose, Jesus tasted death and overcame death so that through his blood, we can be saved. God's the only one. No, there's a disease. Sin is the disease and all the consequences and the curse. God's the only one who's doing anything about it. Okay, so that's reason number one. Satan wanted to stop Christmas from coming because of the curse. Number two is because of God's sovereignty. Because of the sovereignty of God. Continuing in Revelation 12, verse 7. And there was war in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon and the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was not strong enough, and they lost their place in heaven. The sovereignty of God. Sovereignty. Sovereignty means rule. So a sovereign is a king or a queen. They got a queen over there in England. Is, is it Queen Elizabeth, the current queen? Is that right? Elizabeth? Right? It's not a trick question. I'm just not sure. Okay, so she's their sovereign. She's their sovereign. So we understand that. that's what a sovereign means. And the sovereignty is their rule and their, authority, their rightful rule and authority. So God is sovereign. Why? Why is God the sovereign? Because of creation, among other things. What you create, you own. You have oversight over that. If you write a song or a book and you copyright it, that's yours and it belongs to you. If you patent an invention, it's yours. It belongs to you. So God created the world. So he's the rightful ruler. Now Satan... Satan is in rebellion against that. 
Sovereignty does not mean that God causes everything to happen that happens. That's not how we understand sovereignty. God's sovereignty means that he's in control of ultimate outcomes. But there are other free will beings besides God. He created other beings with free will, basically two types of beings, human beings and angelic beings. And here we see the rebellion of the angelic beings. They're using their free will to rebel against the sovereignty of God. So John Milton, in his book Paradise Lost, puts these words into the mouth of Satan Better to rule in hell than to serve in heaven. Now, Satan didn't actually say that in the Scripture, but it encapsulates pretty well the attitude of Satan toward the sovereignty, the will, the way of God. He's in rebellion against that. He hates God. Everything that God wants and plans, Satan's against that. And so God planned for the Christ to be born certain time, certain place, for a certain purpose, that's all Satan has to know to be against it. So conversely, we who are Christians and submit ourselves to the sovereign will of God, we embrace Christmas, the birth of Jesus, for the same reason, because it's part of God's sovereign plan. And we submit. We submit to that plan. From our vantage point, you know, we can look back now on history and see the, the amazing unfolding of God's sovereign plan you know, culminating in the birth and death and resurrection of Jesus. So we've seen one messianic prophecy, the first one, in Genesis there, where God said, the woman will have an offspring and he'll crush her head. First messianic prophecy, prophecy of the Messiah. God appeared to Abraham and said, you know, through you and through your seed, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. That was a messianic prophecy made to Abraham 2,000 years before Jesus was born. Moses leads the Israelites out of Egyptian slavery, and God says, I'm going to raise up another prophet like you, Moses, who will lead people out of their slavery to sin. That's a messianic prophecy made 1,500 years before Jesus was born. God appears to David. David's the king of Israel. He said, David, you're going to have a descendant who's going to sit on a throne, and it will be an everlasting throne, everlasting rule. Well, that was a Messianic prophecy made to David a thousand years before Christ was born. And in Luke's gospel and in Matthew's gospel, we have the genealogies there that demonstrate, that's their purpose, to demonstrate that Jesus of Nazareth matched this prophetic fingerprint that we lift from the Old Testament to identify who the Messiah is. Jesus matched those prophecies, and only Jesus did or could now or could. Okay. So we marvel at the sovereign plan of God as it is played out in history, still respecting uh, people's free will. In fact, it's interesting that in our society, every time we look at a calendar, we have to acknowledge the sovereign plan of God and the birth of Jesus, right? Because we're living in the year 2020, in the year of what? In the year of our Lord, in the year of our, A.D. So all of history is divided between B.C. and A.D., before Christ. A.D. is not after death. For some reason, they switch from English to Latin, and A.D. is Anno Domini, in the year of our 
Lord. So everybody who's got a calendar is acknowledging the sovereign plan of God. Now, some secular historians, they don't like that. I don't want to have to acknowledge Christ in history. So they change B.C. and A.D. to C.E. and B.C.E., right? Some of you know this. What, is that, what does that stand for? Now, what's the C.E. stand for? for huh? The Common Era. That's right, Bruce. And, of course, B.C.E. would be before the Common Era. So now the secular historians can say, ha, I can refer to dates and I don't have to refer to Christ. All right, Mr. Secular Historian. What is the event that separates the common era from before the common era? Oh, well, yeah, that would be the birth of Jesus. Still the same event, still the same dividing line. All right, Mr. Secular Historian, uh, what is it that you devote your life to studying? History? Oh, his story. That's right. Resistance is futile. The sovereignty of God is everywhere. Now, we can't, a person can resist, but they're not going to win. You can fight against God, but the Lord is a warrior, the Bible says. The Lord is his name, and nobody's going to win that battle. It's like getting stuck out there in the rip current in the ocean. You, know, you don't want to swim against that rip current, do you? You don't want to swim against You're going to exhaust yourself and then drown. You want to go parallel, right, to the shore, and then you want to catch a, a wave and ride it in. So we don't want to resist the will of God. We want to catch the wave and hang ten with God's will and ride it to life. But anyhow, we're just thinking here about why uh, does Satan want to stop Christmas from coming? All right, because of the curse, because of the sovereignty of God. And then third and final reason. Well, I don't have a I don't have a sermon clock up there, do I? I have no idea how long I've been preaching now. Am I, is my time up? Oh boy, it's going to be long today. Okay, y'all help me out. Third and final reason, because of God's people. Satan wanted to stop Christmas from coming because of God's people. Revelation 12, 17. Then the dragon was enraged at the woman and went off to make war against the rest of her offspring, those who obey God's commandments and hold to the testimony of Jesus. All right. Because of us, Satan hates everything God loves. And he loves the things that God hates. And who does God love? God loves you. God loves me. He loves his children. He loves all of us. Again, that's all Satan needs to know. God, Satan hates us. He hates us. He hates you. He hates me. I, I may say, and I really feel this way, I don't have an enemy in the world. And you may be able to say that. I don't have an enemy in the world except for one. <laughs> and he's a doozy. We have an enemy, and that's Satan. So, we might experience suffering and setbacks in our life just because we live in a cursed world. I mean, the creation is still good. There's goodness there. You can still see the goodness of the original creation, but it's tainted by the curse. And so we experience some suffering as a result of that. But some of the suffering that we experience, look, it's because we have an enemy. He wants to make our lives miserable and, if possible, turn us against God. The Bible says that hell was created for the devil and his angels. And by now he knows that's his destiny, but he wants to take as many of us with him as possible. It behooves us to know that. This past Monday, December 7th, was the 79th anniversary of what? Yeah, Pearl Harbor. At 6 a.m., 
Six Japanese carriers launched a first wave of 183 bombers and fighter planes. Nine ships of the American fleet were sunk. 21 were severely damaged. The overall death toll reached 2,350. It's a deadly attack. Why was that attack so deadly? Well, among other reasons, because it was a sneak attack. It was a sneak attack. And, and one side knew they were at war, and the other side didn't. That's a very vulnerable position to be in, is to be in a war and not realize you're in a war. We're in a war, and we have an enemy. We're under attack. And so we embrace Christmas. We embrace Christmas as the beloved children of God and as the family of God. A few years ago in Seattle, Washington, there was a race, nine racers running the 400-meter race. The race started. They ran about halfway through. One of the runners fell down, picked himself back up, and continued running. A little further on, he fell down again. And he just collapsed there. And he started crying. And two of the other runners slowed down, and finally they stopped, and they looked back, and then they walked back. And they helped that runner up, and they joined hands, all three, and crossed the finish line together. Special Olympics. Special Olympics. The Hebrew writer says in Hebrews 12, 12, Therefore, strengthen your feeble arms and weak knees. See to it that no one misses the grace of God. Right? Christmas is not about just me getting mine and you getting yours. It's about all of us helping each other across the finish line. It's, it's the, salvation is individual, but it's corporate as well. No child of God left behind. And sometimes you fall down, and I'm the one that needs to stoop and take your hand and strengthen your legs and your arms and help carry you. Sometimes I fall down. You come back and stoop, take my hand, strengthen my legs and arms so that we all cross together. I mean, when, when Jesus left the splendor of heaven to be born into poverty here on earth and then die, he wasn't doing that so that he could get his. When God sent his only beloved son to die for us, God wasn't doing that so he could get his. He was doing that to give us ours, to give us a chance. So we understand then that Christmas is not about the toys, not about the transformers and the tinsels and the trees. Right? It's about love. It's about the family. It's about salvation. That may be a little bit of what the Grinch finally learned at the end of his story.
Oh, Grinch, he had a change of heart. The real Grinch, Satan, is not going to have a change of heart, but he is going to lose. In Revelation 12, 11, we read, They overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. And they did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. Therefore, rejoice. Now, the they in that verse is us. We overcome by the blood of the Lamb. 